It's good to be with you this morning, church. It's great to sing with you, lift up our voices together in song. And I'm excited for this word this morning in Philippians 1, 3 through 11. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn there now. If you didn't bring one, there's, there's a Bible in front of you. Before we begin there, let's turn to the Lord's word again briefly in prayer. Holy Spirit, we trust you to deliver your word with power. We long not just to know things about Christ, we long to treasure him, we long to enjoy him. Would you please work through your word this morning, continue to work through your word this morning. Lord Jesus, we want to see you lifted up. Father, thank you for your initiative in reconciling us to yourself through Christ's work. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. He only sang one note. That's what was said about William Tyndale. Born in 1494, Tyndale's one driving passion was to translate the Bible from Hebrew and Greek into English. Why? Because the average English man, woman, and child had no access to the Bible in their own language. They couldn't read the Bible because it was illegal for anyone to translate it, to read it, or to memorize it in English. For example, in 1519, seven parents were burned at the stake by King Henry for teaching their children to memorize the Lord's Prayer in English. Yet, Tyndale had seen the glory of God in the Bible. Educated Tyndale saw God revealed in his word and he longed for the masses to know the greatness and the might and the mercy of God. When he was 28, an exasperated priest came to Tyndale and said, it is better that the people have the Pope's laws versus God's laws. And Tyndale responded, I defy the Pope and all his laws if God spare my life many more years, I will cause a boy that drive the plow to know more of the scriptures than you. Now, to accomplish this task, Tyndale would need to flee England. He would need to go to the European continent and begin his translation work. King Henry VIII was so frustrated with Tyndale's progress that he sent a representative to the European continent to convince him to stop and to come home. The representative wrote home to King Henry VIII and said, I find Tyndale only singing one note. He agrees to come home as long as you commission an English translation of the Bible. If not, he'll stay in Europe and continue his work. He only sang one note, and he would eventually be murdered for singing it. But Tyndale didn't sing alone. Other Christians risked and lost their lives and invested their fortunes so that the gospel could be translated into English. From Tyndale's assistants to printers that printed the Bibles to merchants who smuggled those Bibles back into England to shopkeepers who risked to sell these Bibles and to the individuals who funded all of this work and guarded his life. They were together singing one note. These partners had been awakened by the same gospel that Tyndale had seen, and they longed for every English speaker to know the same gospel. 
Paul begins this letter to the Philippian church with a prayer. And it's a joyful prayer. It's a good prayer. But it's also a prayer that rebukes half-heartedness in following Christ. Paul thanks God for the Philippians' Christ-exalting, wholehearted devotion to the gospel. And then Paul prays that the Philippians would pursue Christ-exalting, counter-cultural righteousness. This prayer of Paul summons us to reject a life of half-hearted spectating and observing and watching and calls us instead to devoted partnership in the gospel. Christians are rescued from this world but left in this world to make him known. And it costs us something, doesn't it, to endure rejection and to resist the distractions of this world. And so Paul holds before us the second coming of Christ twice in this prayer. And the second, the return of Jesus motivates us to the kind of Christ-exalting devotion and righteousness that Paul commends. Remembering Jesus' return is a motivation to live by faith, to be awakened by what we cannot see and to live our lives in light of it. That's what Paul prays for. Christ-exalting devotion and Christ-exalting righteousness. Now, if you're here this morning and you would not consider yourself to be a Christian, I pray that this sermon invites you to the fullest life in God, followed by an eternal reward in His presence. I'm praying that you would be invited even now to come to Christ for the life that he offers. If you're a distracted Christian with one foot in love with this present world, I pray that this sermon corrects you back to the one who loved you first, the one who loves you still, and the one who loves you with an everlasting love. Or if you're a weary Christian, and you're weighed down by spiritual struggles and the hardships of living in a world broken by sin, I pray that this sermon strengthens you to press on, strengthens you to greater resolve, to see that all of your Christ-exalting devotion and all of your Christ-exalting righteousness will be vindicated on the last day when Christ returns. And it will also give you the joy of living exactly how God intended even now. So let's get into this prayer. Two parts. The first is in verses 3 through 8, a, Christ, a prayer for Christ-exalting devotion. Look at verses 3 and 4 of Philippians chapter 1. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all, for you all making my prayer with joy. Now, Paul loves these Christians in Philippi. His prayer overflows with intense emotion. He's able to communicate his love for them, which I envy as a Dutch person. He's able to tell them how he feels about them. Now we think of Paul as the doctrine guy. He's the, he's the truth guy. He contends for truth and he, he refutes error and he writes Romans and he writes Galatians. But Paul also shows us in this prayer that he, there's no conflict between truth and emotion. Paul's heart fills with thankfulness in verse 3, with joy in verse 4, with confidence in verse 6. He has the same affection for them that Christ has for them in verse 8. 
Paul's love for truth is not in conflict with his desire to express how he really feels about them. And so Paul thanks God with joy every time they come to mind. But why exactly do, do they produce such joy in Paul's heart as he sits in that Roman prison 10 years after having seen them and ministered there? Three reasons that Paul gives us. The first is because of their partnership in the gospel. Look at verse 5. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. If you were here last week, we saw the first day. We saw when Lydia came to faith in Christ and the Philippian jailer and his family came to faith in Christ. And from that first day until now, 10 years later, their partnership in the gospel has not waned. Partnership could be translated as fellowship or contribution or sharing or spiritual togetherness. The Philippians owned gospel work. They had heard Paul proclaim the gospel, but now they've assumed this gospel for themselves. This is our message. This is our gospel that we want to proclaim. This is our great commission that Jesus has given us. They're not standing back spectating Paul as Paul leans forward in the great commission. They are partnering in it. They are owning it for themselves. And this partnership would include jeopardizing their own relational comfort with their neighbors in order to share the gospel with them. It would include the willing assumption of suffering and opposition for the sake of treasuring Christ. And it would include the dramatic financial generosity to the work of the gospel elsewhere. If you flip over to Philippians chapter 4, we read that in you Philippians, verse 15, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. The Christians at Philippi are all in. They're devoted to the message to the point where they're willing to sacrifice their finances in order to see the same gospel go to places where it hasn't yet gone. The second reason for joy, the first is their partnership in the gospel. The second is because God will finish the work he started. Look at verse 6. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. What's the work that God has begun that Paul expresses gratefulness for? It's their justification. They, they've trusted Christ. They heard the gospel and they accepted it for themselves and they've been declared righteous by God. They've been justified. Philippians 3.9, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And so these Philippians have been raised. They've been unblinded. They've been justified. They've been adopted. They've been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. They've been given an, an inheritance forevermore. They are justified. Now, what is the work then that God is going to complete? Well, it's the redemption of their bodies. It's the transformation of their bodies into imperishable bodies that will never fade. We talked about this in 1 Corinthians 15. But it's also souls that are perfected. Hearts that no longer struggle with sin. In Philippians 3 verse 20, Paul says, Our citizenship is in heaven. And from heaven we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. 
Paul says that the work that has be, been begun in Christ will be completed on the day when Christ returns. Third reason for joy, because I hold you in my heart. Look at verses 7 and 8. It is right for me to feel this way, feeling meaning joy, thankfulness. It's right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. For, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. This is an appropriate way for Paul to feel about the Philippians because he holds them in his heart. It's a strange phrase. I think Paul just means when he's not with them, he loves them. He longs for them. He wants to be with them. He misses them when he's not with them. As he's sitting in the jail and as his mind turns to the church in Philippi, thankfulness grows up in his heart. Why? Because I hold you in my heart. Why? For you are all partakers with me of grace. They didn't just hear the gospel. They opened it up and took it for themselves. They received the new life in Christ and their identity as Christians displaced every other foundational identity. They were Christians first. They were Christian men or women. They were Christian Jews or Greek. This became the primary way they thought about themselves and that made them connected to Paul. Paul and the Philippians were partakers of God's grace. They knew what their Redeemer wanted. They've been redeemed by him and they have this promised future waiting for them. They partook together in the gospel. Specifically, they partnered with him in his imprisonment. They weren't ashamed of his chains. They lended their support to the defense and confirmation of the gospel. They helped Paul build defensive walls around the gospel to well define it and to protect it from error, from false teaching and false doctrine. And then they went on the offensive. And they helped him establish or confirm the gospel. They taught one another the gospel. They treasured the gospel. They proclaimed and evangelized with the gospel. Paul is saying, you're not sitting on the sidelines. You've partnered with me. You were devoted to this thing with me. And so as I think of you in prison, I'm thinking of you with joy. Paul says he yearns and longs for the Philippian church with the same loving affection Jesus displays. Paul treasures the Christians in Philippi. They are the precious sheep for whom Christ died. Now, Paul did not labor alone. Tyndale did not labor alone. Gospel proclamation, gospel defense and establishment and confirmation requires the work of the whole church together. So the question then for us this morning that bounces down to us 2,000 years later is, if you are a Christian, are you living as a casual spectator of Christ or are you living as a devoted partner of Christ? The sidelines are for casual spectators. The field is for devoted partners. And God calls all of us who have been made alive in Christ to be on the field as devoted partners in the gospel. I'm going to give you seven words that help us to understand a movement from spectator to partner. Some of these are going to sound familiar from two weeks ago. Some of them are new. First, commit. Commit to a local church family. If you're here this morning and you're not a member of a local church, and you're not regularly answering the question why, I want to encourage you to think about why you're not 
a committed member of a local church or whatever that local church that you're a part of calls it. If you're here, if Cherrydale feels like your church home, then I want to urge you to join, to become part of the family, to officially raise your hand and say, I want to link arms with this church. I want to be a devoted partner of the gospel expressed in this local assembly. I'm going to call you to commit to a local church family. Second, worship. Worship God alone each day and together each week as the church gathers. Throw yourself into worship. This gospel is our life. This gospel has transformed us. We've been, we are partakers of God's grace. Worship him alone. Read and sing and pray in your own home and do it here together as we gather week after week together. Third, disciple. Disciple others in the family. We want to create a culture at Cherrydale where discipling is normal, where we're trying to do one another spiritual good. If you don't know where to start, I'd encourage you just to invite another Christian to read a book of the Bible together with you or to pick up a good Christian book on prayer or evangelism and ask somebody to read it with you and discuss it. Start there. It doesn't need to be very complicated, but do one another spiritual good. Don't spectate one another's lives. Lean in. Invest time. Be willing to speak the truth in love. Fourth, serve. Serve as a member of the family. When Nicole and I came in 2007 as members, it was when we started volunteering with youth group that we began to feel like family. We began to feel like we were taking ownership. This was becoming our family, our home, our church. So I want to urge you to serve. It could be as, as easy as hospitality on Sunday mornings, to working with kids, to hanging out with youth group. Number five, evangelize. Invite others to join our family. Invite others to consider the claims of Christ. Invite others to see the warmth and joy of this local church, for example. Consider yourself to be a chaplain with the non-Christian friends around you in your neighborhood, in your workplace. Be known as a Christian and then love those people well and look for opportunities to share of the hope you have in Christ. Number six, go. Since our family is out there among the nations needing to, to see Christ and, and believe in Christ, we can't only be concerned with this city. We need to be concerned with cities all around the world. So go as God gives you opportunity to places in the world that have no access to the gospel. Go in prayer, go in person. In a few weeks, we're going to be praying for Greg and Kim Duhart, members of our church family. We're sending them to Central Asia to encourage two of our missionary families. Pray for them. Later this year, Pam is planning a short-term trip to the Middle East to partner with one of our missionary families serving. And we're going to have the opportunity to come alongside them and do evangelism with them. Or I've been praying for eight months along with others since missions conference last fall that God would give us an opportunity to plant a church among North Indians where Hindu nationalism has a tight hold on Indians. And just in these last few weeks, opportunities are beginning to surface. God is at work and God is using us to do that work. Don't spectate work among the nations. We can do this together. We can take small steps to see the nations come to faith in Christ. And here's a final one. Number seven, give. Give to support 
the family. Don't underestimate what we can do when we gather some of our resources together and invest them for the sake of the gospel, as we steward them and, and try to wisely invest them into gospel work. If you're a member of Cherrydale, I want to call on you to pray and to think carefully about your practice of giving to this local church and then on top of that, other gospel initiatives and efforts that are worthy of our investment. Think about your planned giving, what you plan in advance to give each month to your local church and to other ministries. And then think about spontaneous giving. Have a category for the Spirit to, to move in your heart in a moment, in a conversation, in a church service, to give to the work of the gospel. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let's throw as much money as possible into eternity, as much as we possibly can. Don't waste your life as a spectator. Paul's prayer is calling on us to live a Christ-exalting life of devotion to him. But that's not all he's praying for. In verses 9 through 11, Paul begins to pray for Christ-exalting righteousness to mark the Philippians. Now this prayer, these verses are built on three building blocks. The first one is in verse 9, where Paul says, it's my prayer that, here's the first building block, your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Now we talked about truth and love last week. It's, it's here for us again. Paul is calling or is praying that the Philippians would abound in love more and more and that their love would be tethered by truth. He prays that your love may abound or overflow or exceed the ordinary. And as it does, he prays that it's guided and anchored by the truth. Knowledge and discernment inform our love. They serve as the riverbanks within which our love flows. See, Paul's not just calling for abounding, yet uninformed and squishy love. But love that's grounded and anchored in the truth of God's word. And Paul is not calling for loveless truth claims, bold propositional statements. He's calling for truth animated by and radiating with love. Now, this is our goal in this moment as our country staggers through a feverish debate on human life. I just want to spend a few minutes here. In this moment that we find ourselves in, we have an opportunity to abound in love tethered by truth. We must love our neighbors well by abounding in love with knowledge and all discernment. We need to say the truth as clearly and convincingly and compassionately as we can. So someone asks, is abortion wrong? We might respond this way. Thanks for the question. Yes, I believe that abortion is an example of how we've rebelled against God. God's word reveals that taking the life of another person is wrong because God made all human beings in his image. His image sits inside of us. That's why C.S. Lewis said, you've never talked to a mere mortal. 
God's image is implanted in us. And that's why all of our hearts, regardless of what we think about this issue, all of our hearts fill with anger and dismay when we think about the wrongful taking of a human life in any context. It's why lynching and genocide are so painful for us to process. Now, as Christians, as a Christian, I view abortion as another kind of heartbreaking injustice. John Piper said this week that abortion is opposite of the gospel, where Jesus dies so that we can live. And as a Christian, I'm a happy captive of God's word. And there's something else that controls me. I know how much suffering exists. I know how complicated life is. I know how powerful sin is. So love compels me not to retreat from God's truth. And love also compels me to stand with sufferers and sinners. And so I thank God that I'm a part of a church family that champions the human rights of unborn children, that regularly fosters and adopts children, that loves and disciples children, that supports vulnerable parents in practical ways and in spiritual ways, and a church family that dispenses the grace of the gospel to men and women who have had an abortion in the past. We need God's grace. And so we dispense God's grace. And I'm thankful to be part of a church family that supports the vital work of two pregnancy centers in our city. Now, I am sure that what I've just said could be improved upon. But please hear me. There are two tendencies that are showing up in Christians the first tendency is to release our grip on God's eternal truth. The other tendency is to release our grip on God's eternal love. And it is my prayer, Cherrydale, that God's love would abound in us with all truth and discernment. That builds on the second block. I'm praying that your love may abound with all truth so that you may approve what is excellent. Look at verse 10. So that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Why does Paul pray that the Philippians would abound in truth and love? So that they may approve, that is to test or examine, what is excellent or surpassing. God's truth becomes our truth because we are his people. In Isaiah 5.20, Isaiah says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Isaiah is calling on God's people to be truthful, to be honest about what God's word says. And I know it can be extremely tempting to try to downplay a biblical truth claim to avoid an argument or a conflict with a neighbor or culture. I know. But we don't have authority to edit God's word. 
God has made us ambassadors, proclaimers, announcers, declarers of his word. We represent his revealed heart and we do it abounding in love. Churches who make a decision, a local church who makes a decision to call evil good or good evil does so longing to be relevant and loving. I think probably the motives are good in a lot of situations. They're longing to be loving and to be relevant. But the reality is those churches are irrelevant to culture and useless to God's redeeming purposes in the world because they offer culture not God's heart. They offer culture something else. Our neighbors don't need us to downplay the truth. They don't need a relevant gospel. They need a true gospel. They need us to hold firm to the truth as we offer them hope by offering them the eternal word. And we do it overflowing with love. Here's Spurgeon. He says, we might sooner pardon the assassin who stretches forth his hand under the guise of friendship and then stabs us to the heart. It would be better to forgive that person than this one. Then we could forgive the man who comes toward us with smooth words, telling us he's God's ambassador, but all the while foments rebellion in our hearts and pacifies us while we're living in revolt against the majesty of heaven. Now, the counsel that Paul gives to Timothy, the young man, the young pastor, is fitting for you and me this morning. We must be willing to proclaim God's word, whether it is in season or style or out of season or style. In 2 Timothy 4.1, Paul writes, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. You see what Paul's done? He's saying, Timothy, look to the end. The returning king is coming to establish an eternal kingdom. Therefore, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. When it's in style, when it's out of style. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. How? With all, with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. If you hold God's truth as your final authority, if you hold truth to God's word as Paul calls Timothy to do, then you will lose friendships and you will lose social credibility. And a time may come when that promotion somehow avoids you. But we are in good company with Christians from 2,000 years who proclaimed and stewarded and lived according to this gospel. Decide in advance to hold fast to the eternal word. 
Your neighbors who you love have itching ears. Do not scratch the itch with untruth. Proclaim and hold to the beautiful, enduring, life-giving word of God where all our hope is found. And do it abounding in love. So that, so that you may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ Jesus. Uncontaminated, sincere, unoffensive at the day of Christ Jesus. So that when Christ Jesus appears, we are overflowing with the fruit of his righteousness. So that we can say on that final day, we can join with Isaiah in Isaiah 61.10 and say together in one voice, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. Our soul shall exalt in our God, for he has clothed us with the garments of salvation, and he has covered us with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Abound in love tethered by truth, so that you may approve what is excellent. Finally, verse 11, the second half, so that we bring glory and praise to God. That's the top building block. Our righteousness showcases God. It shows the world who God is. It reveals his heart. Our love abounds with knowledge and discernment so that we approve what's excellent, so that we will be pure and blameless and filled with the fruit of righteousness through Christ Jesus, so that we can bring glory and praise to God when Jesus returns. He has won the victory. And on that last day, our righteousness will show what his grace has accomplished. Now I want to close here. Why do I say that Jesus' return motivates Christ's exalting devotion and righteousness? What is it about that future event that produces this in us now? Because knowing that Jesus will return shakes us awake. Knowing that Jesus will return to establish an eternal kingdom helps us to live according to that life and not this one. We allow the eternal kingdom to mean more to us than the temporal one. In Philippians 2, 8 through 11, Paul writes, Being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it's in that humiliation that God exalts him. Watch this. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Therefore, because of his humility, because of the death on the cross, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name. Why? So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That eternal kingdom places all the perspective we need. It pushes us out of this world and into the next. So be oriented toward our heavenly home. Be enthralled with our heavenly king. Live lives representing the heavenly kingdom. Invest in heaven's work and be willing to suffer for heaven's reward. Jesus will return. Here's Thomas Brooks with the final word. He lived from 1608 to 1680. It's a great sentence. Remember this, that your life is short, your duties many, 
our assistance great and your reward sure. Therefore, faint not, hold on and hold up in ways of well-doing and heaven shall make amends for us all. So let's sing with one note. Let's live Christ-exalting lives of devotion and righteousness so that all the world may know the grace of God. Lord Jesus, we look to you. Spirit, you are the great assistance that Thomas Brooks talked about. And so to do this work, we need your power overflowing within us so that we might abound in love and truth, that we might be devoted and righteous. So we pray for your help even now as we stand and sing together that you would strengthen us to lift up Christ and to live according to his return. We pray in his name. Amen.